Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And today we're talking about the life and trial of early 20th century Australian trans man Harry Crawford. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay respect to their elders past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. We will be discussing multiple incidents of murder, manslaughter and accidental death, including death by car accident and the death of an infant by natural causes. We will also discuss mistreatment of human remains, violence, suicide attempts and suicidal ideation. The episode also includes discussion of modern and contemporary transphobia, including loss of employment, rejection by family members, outing, pathologization and misgendering in quotes. We will also mention sex and sexual violence, police misconduct, classism in the legal system, verbal abuse and harassment, alcohol abuse, and involuntary committal. So obviously this is a pretty heavy episode as our episodes go, so if any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, or you just don't want to listen to a heavier episode in tone overall, please feel free to skip this episode and listen to one of our other episodes. In 1913, Harry Crawford married a woman named Annie Burkett. In 1917, Annie disappeared, and at the same time, the body of a woman was found in a park near where Annie and Harry lived burnt so badly as to be unidentifiable. As we will discuss in more detail, it's highly likely that this was the body of Annie Burkett and that Harry was involved in her death in some capacity. Harry was arrested in 1920 for Annie's murder, and although we'll talk about the circumstances of her death in more detail in due course, the real focus of this episode is his treatment by the New South Wales legal system, press, and public. I want to make it clear that I'm not giving you this information to establish a true or definitive version of events. In fact, I want to make it clear that we don't know with certainty what happened to Annie and we never will. Instead, I wanted to tell you this information now to dispel right at the beginning any suspense or shock value that I might have inadvertently created if we dealt with this chronologically. Additionally, many of our sources for this episode derive ultimately from Harry's trial and I felt it was necessary to provide you with some background so we can discuss them with the appropriate context. I also want to make clear that I didn't have access to the vast majority of documentation from the trial and investigations. Although Harry biographers did have access to a lot of this material. Both they and I have been selective with this information by necessity, and the account that I give is therefore obviously going to be incomprehensive. We don't have the required information to make a fully informed judgment about what happened to Annie Burkett, and I don't want us to consider it to be our job in this episode to do so. In addition to trial and police records that I've already mentioned, I wanted to briefly talk about three other sources. The first is a 1939 book of professional anecdotes called Viewless Winds by Dr. Herbert Moran. The book includes a brief biography of Harry that had a clear influence over the later biographies that I read. Moran was clearly familiar with court records, but also referred to unpublished records of the case, uh, (laughs) from which he apparently got information dealing with Harry's personal life and relationships. Love those. It's unclear what these records could have been. Moran did visit Harry twice in prison, but by all accounts these meetings were short and Harry was not forthcoming, so I assume much of his information is conjectural if not outright made up. So are you suggesting that these unpublished records of the case don't really exist and he's just using them as a kind of source for stuff he makes up? I don't know. Okay. But if I can't imagine what 
a source could possibly be that would like detail Harry's sex life. I'm not <laughs> going to just assume that probably he had a document from somewhere. That's fair, yeah. I also referred to two more recent biographies. The first was by the writer and biographer Suzanne Faulkner uh, and was published in 1987 but reissued in 2014. The second was by the barrister and former senior Crown Prosecutor for New South Wales, Mark Tedeschi, published in 2012. Both biographies share the problem of being somewhat unclear on their sources and both are extremely reluctant to include footnotes. (laughs) Hooray, love that. Yes. Classic Um, biography not written by a historian stuff. Yeah, that's true. Uh, So yeah, you can see how there's like a general problem with just sort of not knowing where information's come from. Mm. In addition to that, Tedeschi writes in such a narrative style that his book has been described both as speculative and fictionalized. He in fact notes that a couple of chapters are blatant conjecture that he resorted to when he had no sources at all for a portion of Harry's life. So At least he noted it. He did note it, yeah. I, I would still say that his is the better biography overall as he includes substantial analysis of the trial and investigation based on his own legal experience okay. uh, that I just wouldn't have been able to come up with. So um, he's a lawyer? Yeah, so he's a barrister and was the senior crown prosecutor for New South Wales. Oh, yeah, you did yeah, say that, didn't I you? I did, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you gotta you gotta keep up, Alice. You gotta <laughs> But yeah, there there is this sort of overall problem. I've tried to just discard as much detail as I feel is necessary to like leave us only with a core of information that I feel we could reasonably have had a source for. Mm. But I think inevitably I will have included things that, you know, yeah. are, are probably a bit dubious and discarded things that we did have a source for, yeah. just because I don't know. So that's what we're operating with. Refreshingly, both Faulkner and Tedeschi view Harry as a transgender man. <laughs> I'm shocked. I um, yes. <laughs> also was shocked. We will return to their approach to writing about transgender people at the end of the episode. But for now, I just wanted to note that both Faulkner and Tedeschi do use she, her, and he, him pronouns for Harry and often use Harry's dead name. I have, as mentioned in the content warnings, maintained the pronouns used in quotes but I've edited out or around uses of his dead name as is our general practice on this show. Harry was born on the 25th of January 1875 in Ardenza, then a small seaside village near Livorno in northern Italy and was assigned female at birth. He was the first of 22 children born to... (laughs) I can't believe you just said that with a straight face. (laughs) I was just like, it took me a while to catch up. You were like, he was the first of 22 children and I was like, yep, yep, yep. And then Alice made a sound. (laughs) Yeah. The first of 22 children born to Luigi and Azola Fellini, 17 of whom survived. Wow. So the same two parents as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And 17 of them survived. Yeah. That's so many children. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's just too many, frankly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Two years after Harry was born, they immigrated to New Zealand and settled in Wellington, where Harry's maternal grandmother and a substantial community of immigrants from Livorno had already settled. Harry had a difficult relationship with his parents and briefly ran away from home when he was 15. He frequently skipped school and never learned to read or write, instead spending time at the stables owned by his grandmother and her second husband. In his teens, Harry began to work and dress as a man. Harry's sister-in-law, Olga, who was married to his much younger brother, Louis, gave an account of this. She said, She was a beautiful woman who wanted to be a man and had dressed like a man. She loved riding horses. She was a better horseman than any of the men. She worked in the brickworks as a man. She dressed herself as a man in the morning, and in the evening she went home and dressed as a woman. Oh. 
Interesting. So Harry's living with his parents Uh, at this stage. Olga talks about how on the way home on the train with two of his sisters, he would like change into women's clothes to kind of hide this from his parents because his sisters told him that like, you know, you know that this is going to cause like a huge upset in the family if you walk in the door dressed like that. But it does show that some of his siblings were aware of this and apparently like fairly all right with it, which is how this information's come down to us. So that's cool. Harry was repeatedly dismissed from several jobs once he was recognized in the like relatively small community in Wellington. Mm-hmm. His relationship with his family became strained and eventually they refused contact with him. He was brought before the court several times for vagrancy, which was a pretty like catch-all charge. Yeah. In 1896, struggling to find work and rejected by his family, Harry arranged work on a ship and left New Zealand. We know essentially nothing about Harry's time at sea, but by 1898 he had arrived in Sydney and by this time he was pregnant. Oh, okay. He made contact with an Italian couple living in Sydney called Mr. and Mrs. DeAngelis, who he possibly knew through like the Italian community networks. They took him in and he worked at their laundry business until he gave birth on the 19th of September 1898 to a girl who was named Josephine. Harry was not interested in raising Josephine and she was adopted by Mr. and Mrs. DeAngelis, although Harry would occasionally visit her as she grew up. There are various stories put forth in the papers about Harry's time at sea. Many of them contain what we know to be errors, such as saying that he grew up in Italy and he like, first started working on ships and took to sea from there. Mm-hmm. The newspapers include mentions of an Italian sea captain who found out Harry's secret when he accidentally used a feminine gendered word to refer to himself and then assaulted him. And this is the version of events that Moran also gives. During the later uh, police investigation, Josephine would tell the police that Mrs. DeAngelis had told her that her father was a ship's captain, and the version of the story that Olga knows is that Harry went away with a ship's captain and married him. Although we have no concrete information, it seems unlikely to me that Harry would have voluntarily come out whilst in the isolated and vulnerable situation of working on a ship at sea, and he's never again romantically or sexually linked to a man, so it seems most likely that he was found out accidentally and the pregnancy was the result of sexual assault. Mm. After leaving Josephine with Mr. and Mrs. DeAngelis, Harry took the name Harry Leo Crawford. We know little about Harry's life for the next 14 years, but we do know that he began a series of labor jobs in factories, laundries, and hotels, and lived in a series of boarding houses with other single working class men. Do we know why he picked Harry Leo Crawford? Well, no. Okay. <laughs> we don't know anything ever. But I do want to, to make a note that in choosing the name Harry Crawford, Harry was choosing to represent himself not only as a man, but also as Scottish rather than Italian. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So there was rampant racism against Southern Europeans in Australia at that time, and to a much lesser degree that continues in some forms to this day. Italians were discriminated against in various ways, including the refusal of employment. So by taking on this name, Harry improved his economic prospects in multiple different directions. Oh, yeah. So presumably that had something to do with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But why Harry as opposed to, let like, Tom, we just don't know. Yeah. As mentioned, Harry was illiterate, and so we have basically nothing of his own words. Like, mm-hmm. we don't have any writing of his own, like, letters or anything like that. That just doesn't exist in the case of this person. The only real statements we have from Harry are things from the trial, although he didn't, like, testify so even then that's pretty limited but 
as we'll get into and as you would assume, that's pretty dubious testimony because mm. of the sort of situation he's in. In 1912, then aged 37, Harry was hired as a coachman and yardman for Dr. Gotha Clark. Through this job, Harry met Dr. Clark's housekeeper, Annie Burkett. Annie was a 35-year-old widow with a nine-year-old son, also called Harry. <laughs> this is going to cause problems because Annie's son is a fairly prominent person in this episode. And so I've opted to just, when referring to him, call him by his full name, Harry Burkett. And when we just mention Harry, we're obviously yep. talking about Harry Crawford. Okay. In 1913, Annie resigned from her position with Dr. Clark and purchased a confectionery shop. Ooh. Good I said it was going to be a dark episode, but at least there's a lolly shop. There is a lolly shop. Uh, Annie and her son moved into the rooms above the shop, and three weeks later, on the 19th of February, Harry and Annie married, and Harry moved in. Good for them. Now, Tedeschi spends quite a long time speculating about Harry's sex life with Annie and in general. We're not going to do this, but as it will become relevant later, I will mention that Harry had managed to make a dildo and carried on a sexual relationship with his wife without her knowing that he was using it. Oh, really? Okay. How we know this is like Harry said this to the police later on, and I'm willing to kind of take that at face value personally. Yeah. It is something that people have sometimes disputed, saying like that's impossible. I don't think it's impossible. I don't Uh, think it's impossible. I feel like I've encountered things like this before. Yeah, we definitely have encountered things like this before, and I don't think Harry really had anything to gain by like lying to the police later on in saying that his wife hadn't known, particularly as his quote-unquote deception of this woman is something that's used to severely mm-hmm. count against him as we we'll yeah. get into further. Later that year, the confectionery shop failed and Annie sold it at a loss. Sorry, Alice. Oh, no. <laughs> so that's the most exciting thing this episode so far, me thinking about a lolly shop. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll what? take you out for pick and mix later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What lolly were you thinking about specifically? Thinking about those like boiled lollies, like a butterscotch or something. Yeah, yeah. I guess this episode's going to be like pretty heavy. So let's just do a little round table of when we did pick and mix as children, what our favorites were. Alice? I'm trying to think when I was a child. See, I feel like now I like lemon ones. And I like anything berry flavored. I liked musk sticks. Oh, this yeah. This is the musk kind of specificity. Yeah. Yeah. See, I couldn't <laughs> no, remember. Musk sticks my jam. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and whiz fizz. I like whiz fizz. Oh, yeah. Whiz fizz is good. Whiz fizz is like quality milk bar content. Oh, and sherbet bombs. Sherbet oh, yeah. bombs are really yeah. good. Yeah. My favorites were the little Coke bottle ones, I think. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I also liked any of the, like, like sour straps and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, they were yeah. good too. So Annie sells the sweet shop at a loss. She and Harry were presumably having marital problems because she and her son moved in with her sister Lily without Harry. However, they soon reconciled and they moved into a new home together. In 1912, Mr. DeAngelis had returned to Italy, and in 1914, Mrs. DeAngelis passed away. By this time, Josephine was 16 and pregnant to a sailor who had abandoned her. Harry arranged lodgings for Josephine until the baby was due and then took her to a maternity home to give birth. In September, she gave birth to a premature baby girl who died that December um, just from like congenital issues. Josephine then came to live with Harry and Annie. Josephine knew that Harry had given birth to her and he made her promise not to tell Annie. We don't know what Annie knew about Josephine prior to this. She may not have known that Josephine existed. So this could have come as quite a nasty shock to her that this teenage girl was all of a sudden living in her house. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So I wanted to kind of pause and talk a bit about the general character of Annie and Harry's marriage because sources differ on this quite dramatically and the pictures painted by Tedeschi and Faulkner are therefore substantially different. Tedeschi describes Harry and Annie as falling in love during their mutual employment at Dr. Clark's, whereas Faulkner describes Harry as a menace who Annie tried desperately to get away from but eventually ended up having to marry. Oh, having to. Why? Uh, Yeah, so this is complicated. It's due to the unreliable nature of court testimony, essentially, uh, in this case, largely that of Harry Burkett. Harry Burkett testified in court that after he and his mother moved to the shop, Harry came every day to bother Annie until she was forced to marry him. And then Harry moved in. Tedeschi points out that Harry Burkett was at this time 10 years old, and his perspective was no doubt influenced by his situation, uh, you know, where his father had passed away, and his mother was now finding a new partner. Mm, Yeah. Uh, And Tedeschi thinks it's more likely that Annie and Harry had already planned to marry before Annie had moved to the shop and that Annie married Harry because she chose to. Mm -hmm. I think it is quite hard as an individual to coerce another individual into marrying you. Yes. Like, I can't see how that would go down without, like, a pregnancy involved or families involved. Yeah. Or Or it could just be money involved. Like, does Harry have, like... At this point, Annie is financially better off than Harry. Okay. Uh, It could have been a practical consideration because, you know, like Harry does have a job and does bring wages in to the Mm. household. Yeah. And so that could very well be part of her motivation, but that's not forcing someone to marry you. Like that's, I would say, particularly at this time when women were economically quite restricted was probably Mm. quite a common reason why people married. And whilst obviously that's not, great it's not the same as someone being literally forced into a marriage yeah yeah it's difficult to know how to deal with court testimony like this particularly coming from someone who was obviously very intimately involved with the situation Mm -hmm. as harry burkett was and i don't think we can really easily find a solution to that we can't figure out the truth here in any meaningful way i sense this is a theme of this episode yeah it is Harry Burkett also testified that Harry and Annie quarrelled frequently and that Harry would break furniture and swear at Annie. Josephine testified that they often fought over her specifically and that Annie would break crockery during these fights. One of their Mm -hmm. neighbours, George Smith, similarly testified that they fought, saying the Crawfords seemed to be two extremes. One day they would be jangling, which was contemporary slang for fighting, and the next day they would be on the veranda as affectionate as a young couple. He further added, I suppose every couple has a jangle now and again. (laughs) Sorry, I'm trying to take it seriously, but the word jangle is just very funny. (laughs) I I considered removing this... Purely because I didn't feel that Jangle really, like, maintained the seriousness <laughs> yeah. of what was going on here, but I felt it was a useful quote, so... Yeah. I was, like, waiting while you clarified it to see if jangling would be fighting or having sex. Same. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> Two of their other neighbours, Lydia Parnell and Edith Hoyes, said that the couple generally seemed to be very affectionate. As this information was solicited to demonstrate that Harry was capable of murder, I want to consider what we can reasonably conclude from it. There doesn't seem to be any question that Annie and Harry did fight, I'm willing to accept that and Mm -hmm. I don't want to downplay the potential that the relationship was abusive however it seems that these were 
mutual fights rather than one-sided verbal abuse. And given that the couple was under financial stress and were clearly in conflict over Josephine, this doesn't seem especially surprising or concerning to me. Yeah, it seems to me entirely possible that they were just in a relationship, they loved each other, but they had fights. Like, that happens. I mean, obviously we don't have complete information here, but like you said, the testimony sounds very two-sided. Like, Um, he's breaking furniture, she's breaking furniture. Yeah, well, I thought, like, in particular, like, Harry Burkett talks about how Harry would break things and, like, yell and stuff like that, and then Josephine says that Annie would... Yeah. And it seems obvious that they're kind of both aligning with their parent. Yeah. Most likely to kind of give us a part of the situation and in considered as a whole, like, with the neighbor testimony, that seems... Kind yeah. of most likely to me. In early 1917, Annie somehow found out that Harry was trans. When later asked by the police if Annie had known this, Harry said, no, not until the latter part of our marriage. I think someone had been talking. The Daily Telegraph also reported that Josephine had said, in 1917, I met my mother and my mother told me everything is unsettled now and upside down. Annie has discovered I'm a woman. We're going to sell out and I'm going my way and Annie is going her way. We don't know how Annie found out, although Moran says that Josephine let it slip to a neighbor. This may or may not be the case. Ultimately, it doesn't make too much of a difference. Mm -hmm. Most of our evidence about this period comes from Annie's sister, Lily. Lily testified that Annie wrote to her in 1917 saying, I have something I want to tell you. I found out something queer about Harry. I don't know what to do, but I'll tell you about it when I see you and get your advice. Later, she had come to Lily's house and, although Harry came with her, spoke with her sister briefly in private and told her sister that Harry was not a man. Tedeschi imagines Annie's reaction was one of extreme disgust, and Faulkner wonders why Annie didn't immediately leave Harry. Ultimately, we know little about Annie's reaction, however, apart from what we've already just discussed. Her letter to Lily indicates that she was conflicted and unsure of what to do, And Josephine's testimony indicates that Harry believed they were going to separate. Moran, although his sources are as unclear as ever, (laughs) says that she was planning to annul the marriage and Tedeschi operates from this assumption as well. This doesn't seem to be an unfair assumption, but it should be noted that eight months passed between Annie finding out and her disappearance, with the couple taking no steps to separate that we're aware of. There are definitely conceivable practical reasons why Annie might have hesitated. We've already talked about uh, how finances could have potentially motivated her to end the marriage in the first place, but uh, I would point out that Annie's left Harry before and was capable of doing so if she was determined to. Perhaps she instead felt conflicted, as her letter to her sister indicates, and wasn't sure if she wanted to leave him or not. I mean, she has been married to this man for like five years or something now, right? Four years, but Four yeah. Years. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. So I think it's very understandable, even if she was like, oh, well, I don't want to be married to him anymore now that I know this, that that's going to be a difficult decision for her. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and like the language in the letter, and obviously that's, I guess, Lily recounting what she remembers it saying. It doesn't come across as shocked. It doesn't come across as, it's mm. like, yeah, it sort of comes across as, well, I found out something strange. I need to decide what to do about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's just ultimately too many unknown variables for us to really conclude anything. And I wanted to kind of make that point more than anything because Tedeschi describes her reaction being akin to someone being confronted with physical deformity where they didn't expect it and her feeling like physically sick and stuff. And like, that's just made up. Yeah, there's no. <laughs> that's just kind of his assumption about how someone would feel if they found out someone they had sex with was trans, which is just like, well, thanks for sharing. That's a you problem. That's a to you death. problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's, that's, yeah. So I just wanted to make clear because like, if you're reading his book, you can kind of 
he, he doesn't make it clear what are his assumptions and what is truth mm-hmm. a lot of the time that you can come aware of that from just assuming like oh yeah so I guess that Annie was like super upset and disgusted about this and like we have no idea yeah and we shouldn't just be like oh well I guess a woman in 1917 if she found out that her husband was not assigned male at birth would be disgusted like we can't operate from that starting point yeah like we just don't know that and so that brings us back to where we started this episode with annie's disappearance before we talk about those events in more detail i wanted to talk about our structure for most of the remainder of this episode my aim in this section where we're going to discuss the events around annie's disappearance is to establish a whether annie died and B, what Harry's involvement can reasonably be said to have been. I want to stress again that we cannot know for sure that we're relying on court testimony and conjecture very heavily, and that I'm not going to go over all the evidence comprehensively. I also want to note that when we get to the next section, discussing the investigation and trial, that I'll be focusing on the ways in which Harry's trial was mishandled, and no longer talking at that point about whether or not he was guilty. Mm. On Friday the 28th of September 1917, before going to work, Harry Burkett saw his mother for what would be the last time. He returned home late that night and went to bed without seeing anyone in the house. Uh, He didn't see anyone on Saturday morning or evening either, before and after he went to work. And after that, he went away with his employers for Sunday and Monday, as Monday was a public holiday. After this weekend, Annie was never seen again. On the morning of Tuesday, the 2nd of October, a man named Ernest Clifford Howard was walking through the nearby Lane Cove River Park. Today, it's known as Lane Cove National Park, and it's quite a large area of parkland that contains thick bush. Just to give you an idea of what you're picturing, not just like Mm -hmm. a a neighbourhood park with like a playground and whatnot. Ernest saw smoke and walked slightly off the track to find a burnt human body over a fire and he went and notified the police. As in the fire was literally burning right then with a human body on it? Uh, yes. Wow, okay. That's yeah, such a so horrific thing to find. It is, yeah. The police attended the scene. The body was badly burnt, and although it could be determined to be a woman's body, it was not going to be easy to identify it more specifically. And we'll leave that at that. The woman's lower legs were unburnt, and so they photographed and kept her shoes. They also recovered a number of personal items, including a small brooch, a diamond ring, an empty flagon, an enamel cup, and a green pendant. An autopsy was performed on the 3rd of October, so the following day. The two doctors who performed the autopsy, Dr. Arthur Aubrey Palmer and Dr. Stratford Sheldon, yes, names would like that at the time, <laughs> let's just acknowledge that and keep moving, concluded that the woman had died from burning to death and that there were no definite signs of violence on the body. At this stage, the police had dismissed the possibility of foul play and suspected that the dead woman was a homeless woman who had been living in the bush and fallen into the fire while drunk. Although the newspapers called for information on the woman, no one came forward and the identity of this woman remained unknown for the time being. Harry Burkett would later identify several items from the scene as belonging to his mother or having been in their home, including the shoes. So I feel that the coincidental timing of her disappearance and the identification of these items is sufficient for us to proceed with the assumption that this was Annie's body. It sounds like it, yeah. Yeah. When Harry Burkett arrived home on the evening of Monday, the 1st of October, Harry was drinking whiskey at the kitchen table. He told the boy that he and Annie had fought and that she'd gone to stay with a friend of hers. 
The following morning, he was still at the kitchen table, seemingly having not slept and having drunk half of the bottle of whiskey. Over the next few days, Harry packed up much of the house, including Annie's belongings, and sold them. When people asked where Annie had gone, he told various inconsistent stories. Okay, not looking good for you, Harry. Mm. On Wednesday, the 3rd of October, Harry took Harry Burkett to Circular Quay, where he purchased two one-way ferry tickets. The boy asked why he wasn't buying return tickets, and Harry said that they would return by tram. How old is Harry Burkett at this time? 14. Okay. They travelled to the Gap, which is a steep seaside cliff, which was and remains a popular suicide spot. Harry went to the cliff and admired the view before stepping over the low fence. He tried to urge Harry Burkett to step over the fence with him, but he refused and eventually they left. Tedeschi believes his plan was to commit a Mm murder-suicide. That sounds plausible. Back in Sydney, they moved into a boarding house. A few nights later, during a storm, Harry put on a raincoat, took a shovel and took Harry Burkett to some vacant shrubland. There, Harry and Harry Burkett began to dig a hole, then wandered around the area for a bit before Harry threw the shovel away and they returned home. Tedeschi believes that Harry intended to kill the boy but lost his nerve. Poor Harry Burkett is having a time. Yes. Yeah, he's being put through some stuff. Yes, Yeah, he is. So where's Josephine while this is happening? She's just off living her own life now. Okay, yep, yeah. Yep. On the 16th of October, the Evening News ran an article about the woman's shoes. Harry, who was illiterate, brought it home and told Harry Burkett to read it to him. In November, Harry took Harry Burkett to live with Marcelina Bombelli, an Italian acquaintance who knew his past but spoke little English. Harry told her that Harry Burkett's father was dead and his mother in hospital and she agreed to take him in. Harry Burkett lived with her for six months before going to live with her son Frank. So, based on these circumstances, it seems likely that Harry was involved in Annie's death. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. When he was brought to trial, the prosecution and the press suggested that Harry had deliberately killed Annie to avoid being exposed. This is also the motive put forward by Moran, but it is questioned by both Faulkner and Tedeschi. They point out the eight months that had elapsed since mm. Annie had found out about Harry and that it seemed unlikely that she would expose him as this would also involve her in that scandal. They also argue that Harry's conduct after Annie's disappearance seems less consistent with premeditated murder than with an accidental death or a crime of passion. Based on the state of the body and witness testimony, it seems likely that Annie died early in the weekend and that Harry was still in a state of shock, drinking heavily, by the time Harry Burkett returned on Monday. The items left at the scene, his inconsistent stories, and even the potential murder or murder-suicide attempts also point to a man who was in a state of shock, grief, and guilt. Tedeschi's own theory, which I will again mention is entirely conjectural, is that Annie and Harry visited the park, that Annie fell and hit her head there, possibly during an argument about what was going on with their marriage, and Harry then decided to dispose of her body, terrified of being blamed for her death and being exposed. Plausible. Did the autopsy say she had been burnt to death? We will discuss the autopsy results further. All right. Okay. okay. Yes. Am uh, I to assume that they just weren't very good at autopsies in 19 whenever or they were certainly worse at autopsies then than they are now. Yeah. But I'm unclear on how much of that is because of understandable restrictions of the time and how much that's to do with incompetence and or corruption on the part of these specific doctors. Okay. Okay. We will discuss. Yeah, the the doctors will come back and they will say some different things. 
Okay. Is there anything that you would like to say at this point? I don't think so. So this is the last time we'll kind of talk about the question of what Harry actually did. So like with so much of this episode, we're leaving it as an unknown, but I tried to give a fair summary that neither condemned him unnecessarily or excused him. And if you have any like concerns, please feel free to raise them. I think what you've said makes sense. Like I think Tedeschi does get quite specific in saying, you know, she hit her head Mm. during a fight and then he decided to burn the body, for example. Mm. But I think overall that journal statement that Harry seems like if he's killed Annie or been involved in her death, he hasn't premeditated it and he's like dealing with the guilt or whatever it may be of that situation when like Harry Burka comes home. Like all of that adds up to a coherent story. After this point, the question becomes less what did Harry do and more what can we reasonably legally prove that Mm. Harry did. So we'll return to this matter through that lens in a minute, but first we'll see what Harry does with his life now. So after sending Harry Burkett to live with Marcelina Bombelli, Harry returned to the lifestyle he'd led before marrying Annie, living in boarding houses and working in a series of labour jobs. In 1919, while he was working as a general hand in a hotel, he met Elizabeth King Allison, who went by Lizzie, and who was working in the hotel's office. Harry and Lizzie fell in love, and they were married on the 29th of September 1919. Records were such at the time that it was unlikely to be discovered that he was already married, so that Mm -hmm. wasn't a problem. So did he also, like, legally marry Annie? Yeah, they, like, went to a church and married. Mm -hmm. And I don't specifically remember where Harry and Lizzie get married, but, like, similarly they get married. Yeah. Harry told Lizzie nothing about Annie or Josephine, and they lived a harmonious life, as far as we can tell, as man and wife. Good for them, I guess. In early 1920, Frank told Harry Burkett that Harry had been assigned female at birth. It was seemingly not until this point that Harry Burkett had any suspicions about his mother's disappearance, but he now got in touch with his Aunt Lily, and together they made a police report to Detective Sergeant Stuart Robson. Robson located the paperwork from the initial investigation and Harry Burkett now identified items from the crime scene as belonging to Annie. I wonder what Harry Burkett, and I guess especially what Lily, who is an adult, thought had happened in the intervening time. It's possible that she had suspicions and didn't feel like she had anything concrete Mm. enough to report, and then this came out and she decided that that was sufficient motivation for Harry for her to tell the police. I don't know. But Lily already knew that Harry was a scientist. Oh yeah, that's true. That's yeah, true. so I just wonder what was Lily doing in that time? Annie and Lily weren't close, uh, oh, okay. so they didn't see each other a lot. So potentially just not seeing her sister for a few years was pretty normal for mm-hmm. her. I guess especially if she thought that her sister was about to leave Harry, she might have just thought, okay, I guess she's left Harry and gone somewhere else. Yeah, I I really don't know. And this sort of question of well, what's going on with this person's testimony is unfortunately very common and very frustrating and Mm. I I just don't really know how to address any of this in a satisfactory manner. Like, these questions were raised in the biographies about Harry Burkett as well. Like, he reads an article saying that a woman's body has been found with a picture of his mother's shoes, which he later, like, confidently identifies to the police as being his mother's shoes, but apparently he just doesn't really think anything of it. So the article had a photo of the shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing is that they, like, published pictures of the shoes because that was kind of the only identifying detail. So they were like, whose shoes are these? Does anyone recognize these shoes? And 
and then Harry brought them home and made Harry Burkett read it to him because he couldn't read. Yeah. And then Harry Burkett did nothing about that for yeah. four years or something. Um, and, like, that's not – I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what I'm suggesting here. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just kind of funny. It's sort of interesting, like, how people consider Harry Burkett as well. He was, like, 14 at that point, where some people are like, oh, like, you know, he was obviously, like, a kid, so, like, he – we have to, like, account for that in the ways in which he responds to things, which seems fair. But also other times he's treated as kind of functionally – like a young man or an adult because he's working like a full-time job yeah. and everything mm. particularly if you think well maybe he was suspicious and he was just like living with this man and he had no recourse and it's like well yeah but he is like going out of the house every day and working a full-time job and obviously has like connections at yeah. his job and then like after a little while he's living off with frank Mm, yeah, uh, who obviously is like a connection of Harry's, but isn't yeah the same as him being like under lock and key by Harry or anything like that. So like seemingly, yeah, he just didn't really have any suspicions, and like his mother's just left him, which his it sort of yeah raises questions as to like why that's not a big cause of concern to this kid. And like I'm not trying to imply anything. I, I just it is a bit weird. Yeah, yeah, it is very strange. Like his mother's disappeared. Harry gets him to read a new newspaper article with mm. her shoes as the picture mm. and he's like hmm seems fine yeah harry is clearly going through a lot of emotional angst at the time as well where he goes out with the shovel to dig this hole and he goes up at the gap and everything like yeah yeah I just, and what was harry so, Burkett thinking like i guess we can kind of say he should have thought the shoes were his mum's at the time but then i guess the opposite thought of that we could have is that well maybe he wasn't as confident as is implied when identifying these items later mm, anyway yeah i mean that's a hundred percent a thing that happens when they like do a lineup of potential perpetrators and things like that mm. where mm. the police will like have an idea of who it was and they'll be like was it this guy are you a hundred percent sure it was not this guy oh yeah until like- the person is like it could have been. Yeah, yeah. yeah and we will yeah. talk more about how part of the case is witness testimony that would not be admissible into court today. Yeah. And stuff like that. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to that uh, very soon. So I'll return to the course of investigations now. On the 5th of July, 1920, Robson and another officer went to Harry's work and informed him they were taking him to the police station for questioning. They were deliberately vague on whether he was being arrested, giving the impression that he had to come with them. Legally, if Robson was was arresting Harry, he was obliged to take him before a magistrate, but instead he took him to the offices of the police station. In practice, this was common, and if questioned, Robson could say that he wasn't arresting Harry and he had come voluntarily for questioning. Yep. Police. Police. Harry was taken to the station and interviewed. He was then given a typed version of his statement, which he pretended to read and then signed. Oh no. It contained numerous lies about his background and life, so he said, for example, that he had not been married before marrying Lizzie, and that he was Scottish. Robson, once he had signed it, informed him that he believed he'd actually been married to Annie Burkett and asked him to strip off so he could see if there were any identifying marks on the body to confirm that he was Scottish. What? (laughs) What are you looking for? Well, Tedeschi believes that this was a deliberate attempt to get Harry to expose himself as not being a cisgender man. Oh, yeah. Honestly, Uh, I'd just forgotten about that at that moment. I was just confused (laughs) thinking about what, like, special marks Scottish people There there aren't any special Scottish tattoos. (laughs) No. That I'm aware of. Like I mean maybe <laughs> 
if you've got any kind of like Scots pride tattoo or something like that, then that would be like a pretty (laughs) reasonable indication. Or if you had some kind of Scottish military tattoo or something. um, Every Scottish person has the Scottish flag tattooed on them at birth. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's, it's not like, you know, every Scottish person has the same birthmark (laughs) or something like that. So yeah, like Tedeschi thinks, I think quite reasonably that this is just an attempt to get Harry to have to tell him that he was not a cisgender man. Yeah. And it was during these proceedings that Harry, who at that point believed he might be sent to prison, told Robson that he was, in Harry's words, a woman and not a man. Robson then informed Harry that they were going to go to Harry's house together and search it, maintaining ambiguity over whether Harry was under arrest and whether he had to allow this. Love that. Love that. During the search, the police located Harry's dildo, which he asked them to not let Lizzie see. The police took Harry back to the station and charged him with Annie's murder. So did they find anything in the house that pointed to him having killed Annie? Were they literally no. just like, was the dildo the thing yes. that they were like, yep, you're enough of a, you know? Yeah. The dildo will come back. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, like the dildo is viewed as... Evidence that this man is a murderer. Yes. I yeah. I presume it's like character evidence. Well, yeah. he deceived his wife about yeah. this. He could just kill someone if he wanted to. Well, like the thought is he deceived his wife and she found out. So he killed her. Yeah. And yeah. The dildo is seen as evidence of deception. Yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll come back to the dildo, uh, later on but um for now harry gets taken to the station and charged with annie's murder and then lizzie came to the station and asked to speak to her husband she was informed that harry was a woman which she refused to believe harry told the officer to tell lizzie that he loved her but couldn't speak with her as she still refused to believe what she had been told they showed her the dildo she left and couldn't be found to appear in court and never had contact with harry again okay it's been a day for lizzie too yeah look this whole episode is just a series of days for various people unfortunately so we're now going to move into talking about the trial harry was provided a solicitor by legal aid who would represent him in his committal hearing on the basis of the hearing the magistrate would decide whether to dismiss the case or send it to trial harry appeared in court initially on the 6th of july usually prisoners were taken from the station to the court underground so like they're connected by an underground passageway Mm -hmm. but harry was taken in the open and swarmed by the press why did they take him in the open just uh to for the press to see get some attention yeah. just for funsies yeah. tedeschi believes that it's a so that the press would give it some attention and therefore maybe witnesses would come forward that they mm-hmm. could use in their case against harry and b so robson could show off how he was a big tough man who'd arrested harry uh tedeschi doesn't think very highly of robson i don't really know what that's based on but uh robson's a cop so like seems likely to me that he'd be scumbag (laughs) despite having charged him the police had little actual evidence that harry had killed annie and only now began compiling their case for the hearing for this reason it was repeatedly delayed initially to the 14th of july then to the 22nd of July, and at this point Harry's solicitor requested a longer adjournment to avoid Harry being needlessly paraded in front of the public. The committal proceedings finally took place on the 16th of August, and the magistrate committed Harry to trial on the charge of murder. Okay. The police continued in their dubious conduct. During the investigation, Annie's grave was exhumed, and another autopsy was performed. Presumably hoping that they could get a confession, the police took Harry to the morgue, where he was shown the open coffin and told this is the woman you murdered that seems like a thing that shouldn't be allowed to be done i assume this was illegal 
It sounds illegal. <laughs> Certainly saying this is the woman you murdered, like, this man has not been sentenced. Yeah. That's not yeah. legally the situation yet. I mean, also just, you know, repeatedly going to court and being like, oh, sorry, guys, can we have another week? We forgot to actually get any evidence against this guy we arrested. Like, that's yeah. also not on. Yeah. Like, even if these things are legal or, like, technically legal, obviously they're immoral. Yeah. 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 Which I know the police don't feel is really relevant to them, but it should be. (laughs) There are also multiple instances of testimony changing to suit the prosecution. So we'll come to further examples of this later, but I'll give you one now as an example. So a police officer testified that he'd gone to the crime scene the day after the body was found and found a bottle with a small amount of kerosene in it. This is significant because it could be used to argue premeditation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the autopsying doctors, Dr. Palmer, said that he'd been shown a bottle and that it had smelled faintly of kerosene or maybe maybe of liquor he wasn't sure the bottle uh, of kerosene if kerosene it was was initially reported as being about six yards from the vicinity of the fire but by the time of the 1920 trial it was said to have been within five or six feet of the body okay so a bottle that maybe contained kerosene that was like several meters away becomes a bottle that did contain kerosene right next to it yes yeah yeah Yeah. harry's trial began on the 5th of october 1920 the crown prosecutor was william thomas coyle who was highly experienced and known for being a determined and clever cross-examiner harry was again assisted through legal aid and assigned the barrister Archibald MacDonald, who was no match for Coyle's skill and experience. This was noted even in some of the papers at the time and is evident in the large number of tactical errors and missed opportunities he made in Harry's defence. So for example, MacDonald could have objected to Robson testifying because he had obtained a statement without fulfilling his obligation to inform Harry of his rights and to bring him before a magistrate. The prosecution also entered into evidence that Harry had had a gun in his house. This had no relevance to the case. Well, and, and he wasn't shot. No, and clearly prejudiced the jury. In Tedeschi's opinion, McDonald should have objected and requested that the case be dismissed and a new jury called. Yeah. He did none of these things. I feel so bad for this McDonald guy. McDonald. McDonald. Yeah. Okay. Although I will know that the judge in his notes called him McDonald because it was apparently just so ineffectual that the judge was like, I don't know this guy's name. <laughs> I, I don't know if I feel bad for him. I feel worse for Harry and uh, other people that he's probably represented and who've gone to prison. <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he chose to become a lawyer. He knew this was what he was going to do, yeah. right? Although, like, poor representation by illegal aid is still a problem today. Yeah. And it's yeah. generally a problem of people being overworked rather than being incompetent, as far as I understand it. So yeah. I don't know if that was the case in this scenario, but all respect to lawyers who work with legal aid, to be clear. There are lots yeah. of reasons why people do their jobs badly. Yeah, there are. Most of, of them aren't bad people. Yeah. Although Harry's transness is our focus in this episode, there's a lot that could be said about the effects of Harry's socioeconomic status on his experience of the Australian legal system, and I felt I had to note that. In Faulkner's words, Harry was poor, working class, illiterate, uneducated in the workings of the courts and law, and was hardly in a position to stand up for her rights. Truly, that is also still an issue. Truly, yes, it is. So I mentioned prior that the prosecution also made use of witness testimony that was highly disputable. Irene, you've already mentioned scenarios where people like misidentify people in lineups and things like that, and that happens fairly regularly, uh, because that's just how the human brain works unfortunately several witnesses came forth who said they remembered seeing harry at the park that weekend but who had never met harry and admitted to only making this connection when they saw his picture in the paper witnesses like this are obviously highly unreliable 
and it's unlikely that someone could reliably recognize a stranger they saw briefly once three years ago. Yeah, that would have to be a very memorable, just like guy at the park. Mm. I'm uh, like, I've seen pictures of Harry. He looks like a guy. He certainly just is a guy. guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, even if you saw someone and it looked like they were like distressed or they were pacing or something, mm. like sometimes people are upset in parks. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. unless you made that connection at the time because of the body being found, which these witnesses didn't say that they did Mm. then there's really no reason for you to retain the information for several years yeah it should also be noted that one of the witnesses a mrs carroll changed the day that she had seen harry in between the hearing and the trial with the result that her testimony more strongly supported the timeline put forth by the prosecution i see so you know yeah i don't know what's going on behind the scenes there but i think it's something and i don't like it probably some police bribes i don't know if it's bribes so much as just like it's really easy to kind of talk people into thinking that they thought something true especially when you're the police and you know people are scared of the police yeah if a policeman is repeatedly like are you sure it wasn't that day you're probably eventually just going to be like oh yeah maybe it was Mm. and also frankly like we don't know anything about any of these people but i feel like if you're the type of person to say oh i saw that person based on a picture in the paper like you're clearly already kind of either highly suggestible or you you really want to testify in court yeah yeah <laughs> especially in a trial that is like a big publicity case mm, that's so true too, i feel yeah. like that could be an issue again like i don't know anything about mrs carroll yeah i'm sure yeah. she was a lovely woman but i think that that's a reasonable assessment that yeah. like at best she is highly suggestible yes yeah. so doctors palmer and sheldon who had autopsied annie gave expert testimony They concluded from the first autopsy that there were no signs of violence on Annie's body. The same men performed a second autopsy on what remained of the body three years later and now concluded the death was undoubtedly due to violence. Okay, guys. Okay. Well, um... So regardless of which one is the truth, these men are very bad at their jobs. (laughs) Exactly. So this is based on one of the fractures in the skull which they concluded could not have been caused by fire. In cross-examination by McDonnell, maybe the one case where he did something good during this trial, Palmer conceded that, no, the crack might have been caused by fire after. After all. Okay. So they just became more sure about this crack as suited what? Yeah. And like, I think it's worth noting that when I said they're either incompetent or corrupt, when the police found this body, they were like, it's probably just some homeless woman who fell mm. on a fire drunk. And it's possible that they were like, okay, well, like, we know that's the official line. So like, if we're unsure, we're just going to say that that's the case because we don't want to like make our colleagues, the police have to do this whole investigation because we say it's violence. Yeah. Or even where we're just not looking too closely because yeah. it's a case we're not particularly. It's just open and shut, whatever. Yeah. 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 Okay. This homeless um, woman fell on a fire. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's not like they opened this by being like the first time oh there's a crack in her skull that could have been nothing like they started by being like no signs of violence yeah 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 i've talked briefly about a few things that have affected this case but obviously the biggest thing that we need to talk about is the role that harry's gender played public perceptions of harry's gender had a huge influence on the trial The case generated a huge storm of publicity and was called the man-woman case by both the police and the press. I guess there was a man and a woman involved. (laughs) Yep. That's not what they mean. No. The public section of the courtroom was packed during both the hearing and the trial. Harry appeared at the hearing in men's clothes, but at the trial in women's clothes, likely on the advice of his lawyer yeah mm-hmm. um and there were cries of disappointment from the public that they didn't get to see him dressed as a man 
Uh, Public's just not very good. No, it's not. <laughs> I just can't imagine being in a situation where someone was like, hey, there's this high profile court case. Want to check it out? Are you free tomorrow? I would be like, no. I guess they didn't have TV. Like, you couldn't just watch Law and Order. I could literally just lie on the floor instead of going to court. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Coming back to how we started this conversation, as anyone who's ever worked in customer service knows, the public is awful. Um, <laughs> the newspapers of the day covered not only details from the trial, but also from Harry's life, appearance, and personal habits, with a focus on his gender presentation and how the writers viewed this as deceptive. Smith's Weekly published an article about Harry envisioning his transgender identity as akin to a demon a body or a ghost haunting a house. <laughs> wow. They wrote, The dwelling that had been designed for the sacred ceremonies of motherhood became a ribald clubhouse for mock rites of masculinity. The cowering soul thing was forced to witness these rites, even to participate in them, and instead of being able to breathe the clean ecstasy of life, had to content itself with suffocating gusts of falsehood. So it was that a pathetic figure, longing to be a man because it knew itself no longer a woman, went nervously through the days, doubly afraid of the loneliness that all souls fear, and seeking sly means to win companionship and to satisfy the fantastic curiosity of the ghoul that ruled it. <laughs> the ghoul. They really do think that there's like Harry's body, Harry's wholesome cisgender soul, and then this <laughs> demon that's just come in and been like, we're a man now, Harry, sorry, deal with it. <laughs> yeah, and like obviously that's awful and one of the most like vilely transphobic things I've ever read. But, like, just very strong imagery in a way that I kind of enjoy. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I just finished reading a collection of Edgar Allan Poe, and I feel like there's a lot of similar kind of imagery and vibes going on there. Mm. And uh, I think there is some kind of precedent for, like, uh, trans writing about, like, trans experiences, like, analogous to haunted house experiences. So... Like, I don't know, maybe you could reclaim this and write some kind of schlocky gothic story or something like that. As it is, obviously, it's horrendous. I yeah. think the story should be titled The Ghoul Within. The Ghoul I think Within, yeah. But know. it is something that, like, you see people talk about a lot when they're talking about, like, their trans bodies and, like, body modification and things like that. They're like, yeah, it's like putting paintings up on the walls of my house. <laughs> um, which no. is kind of, yeah, it's, I don't know. It just strikes me that was so... There's something. Like, the fact that they conceptualise Harry's soul as this, like, innocent thing inside suffering from... Yeah, it is interesting. It's something that you could definitely get into way more than we've had time to do here today. The, like, just reading newspaper articles over literally a century now, because Harry still turns up in the Australian papers. Yeah. To talk about the ways in which the Australian public is thinking about gender. Like, I thought the line that that Harry was, like, longing to be a man because it knew itself no longer a woman was really interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. In terms yeah. of the implications that has of, like, how this author thought about gender. So, yeah, that's sort of the tone of, of the papers at the time. The press focused so much on Harry's gender presentation that Faulkner says that Harry's gender is what he was truly on trial for. This is nowhere clearer than in the use of Harry's dildo as an official exhibit in the court case designed to demonstrate Harry's deception and therefore motive for murder. The dildo was not mentioned during the hearing and was not known to the public until Coyle used it for shock value <laughs> as his trump card at the end of the case. So this is the last thing he brings out. I see. This is the image he wants to leave the jury with when they decide what Harry's fate should be. Yeah. Regarding this use of the dildo, Tedeschi says... The central object of the trial, the article, was always referred to by euphemisms. In declining to refer to it by its proper name, it assumed a significance way out of proportion to what it deserved. 
Underlying its role as a court exhibit, what it represented was a challenge to society's rigid boundaries between male and female. The article was the offensive weapon that had been used by the accused in the perpetration of an offence far worse than murder. She had challenged fixed views and standards about the meaning of male and female in a society in which those roles were strictly defined and hardly ever challenged. So I'll just quickly note, we don't know what happened to the dildo, but at a meeting of the New South Wales branch of the British Medical Association uh, the following year, in September 1921, Drs Palmer and Sheldon discussed Harry's trial and displayed the dildo for their peers as what I can only assume is kind of a curiosity object. After that, it vanishes from the historical record. There is currently an object held by the Justice and Police Museum in Sydney that some claim is Harry's dildo. I don't know anything more about that. Uh, But both Tedeschi and the museum's curator don't believe that it is. Okay. So where was society at this time in terms of, like, general dildo usage? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I feel like that's a very hard thing to look up because, like, you know, even if a bunch of people were using dildos in the 1920s, if they weren't writing down that it was happening... It was very little spoken about. Yeah, Yeah. if it's quite taboo, even if it's going on a lot, we may not know. I know that there's, like, some amount of sex toy usage that happened in the Victorian period as kind of like a medical Mm. thing. Although I don't know very much about it, and I don't know if that carried over into Australia. And I guess the only other place that I would think to look would be into, like, information we have about, like, sex workers and stuff at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't really know. I think that, from my understanding, sexuality was not broadly talked about in public very much in Australia at that time. I know that's kind of a perception that we tend to have of the past all the time, and sometimes it's not true, but to my understanding that is the case here. And obviously this particular dildo can't be understood like a dildo uh, more generally would. It's a strap-on and it's a packer in modern language. You know, it obviously has these very, like, gendered... Yeah, uh, sort of implications on it that not all dildos would. So yeah. Possibly it was more shocking than the average dildo, but yeah. I think the average dildo was still pretty shocking. Yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering. For the jury, is this going to be like the first time they thought about dildos ever? Or is this like, oh, mm. it's one of these, but in a weird context? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think like obviously they're evoking the context of Harry wearing this to have sex with a woman. Like, that's the image that is shocking rather than the existence of a dildo, I guess. Yeah. Okay, carry on. After the trial concluded, the jury deliberated for just under two hours and then returned a guilty verdict. In 1920, murder was a capital crime in Australia, and so the judge declared that Harry would be hanged and he was taken away while the public shouted abuse. In December 1920, his sentence was commuted to life imprisonment, as was almost always the case in Australia at that time. Tedeschi writes that he's often asked if he thinks Harry was guilty. He's says, my answer is always the same. That is the wrong question. The right question is, was there sufficient evidence to justify her conviction for murder? Unsurprisingly, his conclusion to that question is no. Uh, And he elaborates, if her trial were held today, I'm quite convinced that she would either be acquitted outright or at most convicted of manslaughter. Her conviction for murder was based on fallacious scientific evidence, unreliable citing witnesses, dubious police practices, and an avalanche of prejudicial publicity. Yep, that's 100% correct. Yes, sounds true. Yeah. Harry was sent to the Long Bay Prison Complex to serve his sentence 
acquaintance. We have few sources on Harry's life after this point compared to the quite well-documented period of the trial, but we know from prison records that Harry was apparently a model prisoner. Uh, He wasn't disciplined at all during his time. In prison, he met fellow prisoner Dorothy Mort. Dorothy and her husband were part of Sydney High Society, She had been having an affair uh, with a doctor who was treating her for depression. Uh, So (laughs) that's a whole kettle of fish. But anyway, and when he broke it off, she shot him and then attempted suicide, uh, but survived. So obviously some very unethical conduct of his there. Mm -hmm. In another highly publicized trial, Dorothy was found not guilty on the grounds of mental illness and was therefore legally required to be incarcerated at the governor's pleasure. There were few asylums that have facilities for women at this time and so she was kept in Long Bay instead. Is Long Bay a women's prison? I don't think it's exclusively a women's prison but it does have like a women's only ward. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to hear that there were few asylums with facilities for women because I feel like so much of what we hear about institutions Institutionalizing people for mental health issues in this time are about people putting like problem women away. That's true. Yeah, I I don't know if it's sort of a difference between like Dorothy is an upper class woman and she's Mm. going to be confined for like an indefinite period of time, but um, also like I feel like you're kind of mentioning things we hear about where people do try and get women locked away for indefinite periods of time. So yeah, I I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe it comes back to the governor's pleasure thing. Maybe there are state run and private. Maybe. Oh yeah, that's true. That could be. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I don't know. In Long Bay, she and Harry formed a close friendship. Moran describes the ridiculous little sentimental liaison in jail with another murderess. <laughs> this is wow, Moran. Yeah, Moran's like not good. <laughs> uh, like obviously, he he was writing quite a long time ago, but still not it's good. Not like a fun read. Hates the gays, does Moran. Anyway, presumably he's referring to Dorothy. There were mm-hmm. a couple of other women who were in Long Bay at that time who'd been convicted of murder, but as we know, Harry was friends with Dorothy, presumably as Dorothy. And whether this quote indicates that their relationship was a close friendship or was potentially romantic mm-hmm. is unclear. In 1929, after Harry had been in prison for nine years, a concerted movement began to have both him and Dorothy released. At this time, life sentences were rarely literal and nine years was quite a long prison sentence oh interesting um now these days we have mandatory non-parole periods yeah you know if someone's sentenced to life they'll have like a mandatory non-parole period of like 20 years or whatever but that was brought in later in the 20th century so that didn't exist in australia and so in practice someone being in jail for like 10 years was quite unusual and seen as quite extreme and shocking by certain parts of the Australian public. That's just very interesting information there. Yeah. It's another sort of thing that I'd like to know more about how that sort of developed and how that development is similar or different to other places in the world, obviously, especially the United States. Yeah. In October of 1929, Dorothy was released and began campaigning with a group of other upper-class Sydney women for Harry's release. This was quite a controversial issue and was hashed out in the papers. And it's very interesting to note the competing and very gendered ways in which they depict Harry whilst discussing this. The Truth, which was against Harry's release, described him as a fiendish human monster, murderous, sexual pervert, liar, hypocrite, and filthy-tongued man-woman. 
Smith's Weekly, who published the Haunted House article, but by now are on Harry's side. <laughs> okay, Smith's Weekly. It's, it's been a decade, yeah. you know, I assume there's different people here. Described him as a frail little woman, to all appearances a bundle of femininity, nothing strident or raucous about her. She is quiet and with a discipline of 10 years ingrained in her, intensely obedient. The implication is clearly that Harry has been reformed enough, by which they mean rendered feminine enough, that punishment is no longer necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, neither of those was any good. No, <laughs> no, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> you see what I mean about how, like, the truth of Harry's life aside and analysis of what the papers have to say. Yeah. Really, just every single one of these quotes is just jam-packed with whatever was going on in 1929 Australia regarding yeah. gender. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. could write an essay on any of these quotes. You really could, yeah. It's kind of wild that the, like, anti-Harry article is the one which is like, no, this is a man, and that freaks me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that goes back to Faulkner and Tedeschi's assessment of Harry being essentially on trial for being transgender. Yeah. Um, is that the people who are like, no, this person is guilty and needs to be in jail are like this is a masculine pervert yeah and the people are like no 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 like harry should be let out are like this is a nice little old lady yeah, yeah. It just yeah. sort of confirms that analysis on the 19th of february 1931 harry was released under a form of parole requiring him to be of good behavior and to keep the peace as he had been sentenced to life he was under these conditions for the rest of his life mm-hmm. this meant he was effectively legally barred from dressing or living as a man Harry briefly reunited with Dorothy, but the class differences that had meant little in prison were now a major obstacle and they drifted Mm -hmm. apart. Harry was released during the Great Depression when Australia was experiencing extremely high unemployment rates. To avoid notoriety, he changed his name, and despite the difficult conditions of the time, he managed to find work as a live-in household domestic. By 1934, he'd saved enough money that he was able to establish a boarding house. It was successful, and after a year, he sold it at a profit and purchased a new one, and he continued in this pattern of flipping boarding houses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good for him, I guess. Good for him, yeah. On the 9th of June 1938, he sold one of these boarding houses for £100, which was nearly half the average male factory worker's yearly earnings, just to give you an idea of the scale of the amount. Mm-hmm. Um, Harry- I'm just imagining my yearly earnings to figure out how much money that would be like getting right this second. Mm. Like an amount, yeah. Yeah, like a, a solid amount. Obviously not like rich, but he's definitely achieved a level of financial security that he hadn't previously had, so that is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Good for him. Good for him. Harry headed from the sale to the bank and on the way stepped out between two parked cars to cross the street and was hit by a car. Oh no! He was taken by ambulance to the Sydney hospital and he died there the following day, the 10th of June 1938, without regaining consciousness. Although he had been well respected during his post-prison life, Harry had formed no close attachments and no one claimed the body or attended his funeral. He was buried by the state in an unmarked pulpit's grave in Rookwood Cemetery and his possessions were seized by the government. That was a very sad ending. Yeah, a very sudden and unfortunate ending yeah. at a time when he'd managed to sort of find some stability. To wrap up this episode, we're going to do our traditional gender discussion. As we've discussed, and as Faulkner and Tedeschi also discuss at length, the trial and the press coverage tell us a lot about how transgender people were conceived of within contemporary Australian society. And so to finish the episode, I wanted to discuss what Faulkner and Tedeschi's biographies can tell us about Australian attitudes to the same issue nearly a century later. I will note that Faulkner's book was originally published in 1987, 
which was a very different time for discussions of transgender people, but it was issued with a new edition in 2014. There were some corrections and amendments made to the original text, but she has largely chosen to let the gender portions of the book stand. That's honestly kind of an interesting choice. Yeah. The ways we talk about gender have changed so much in that, like, 35 years. Yeah. I don't want to read too much into that decision but I feel it's fair for me to take that as if not her opinion today something she is happy to put her name to in 2014 Mm. yeah and I'm going to kind of be talking for ease about her work and Tedeschi's work like mostly together yeah 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 Yeah. that makes sense so I wanted to first of all note the interesting similarities between Harry's story and those of other historical trans men that we've spoken about Harry faced economic insecurity and had relationships with women both things which other biographers have used to claim comparative figures as women. Nevertheless, both Faulkner and Tedeschi understand Harry to be a transgender man, and they analyse his story through this lens, which has come up a few times through this episode. This means that this episode, or this section of the episode, can be substantially different than other trans episodes, because I don't feel the need to justify our reading of him as a trans man. The predominant understanding of the scholarship is that he was a trans man. I, did I think... concur. That's fine. Yeah. I did think when you were like, we're into our traditional gender discussion, I was kind of like, if, on what? On what? I thought this was going to be one of those episodes where we were just like, yeah, so we can all agree that that was man. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. I mean, we can move past that and, and yeah. talk about other stuff. It's <laughs> Amazing. crazy. Yeah. Tedeschi even describes Harry, and I, I really enjoyed this, as a transgender warrior at a time when there was no understanding of her condition and no support for her cause. And I thought it was pretty fun that this older Australian barrister was, even if indirectly, kind of evoking Leslie Feinberg in this (laughs) discussion. I was wondering that. Like, did they know they were referencing Leslie Feinberg? Possibly. I assume not. That is kind of a term that gets used outside of specifically Leslie Feinberg's book, Transgender Warriors. But obviously it does ultimately lead back to that and yeah. I was like you go Mark oh my god <laughs> <laughs> however I do want to draw attention to Tedeschi's use of she her pronouns yeah. and his use of the term her condition in that quote mm. Tedeschi himself clarifies what he means by that saying the most acceptable term today for her condition is gender identity disorder which is synonymous with transsexualism Faulkner uses similar language describing Harry as a female transsexual who was quote driven by a strong psychological compulsion to live as a man, despite her apparently normal physiology as a woman. She describes what she understands as common characteristics of trans men, saying that they, I mean, like, saying that we exhibit, (laughs) this is about me now, um, saying that we exhibit stereotypical and even caricatured male behavior. She also says, uh, and again I quote, subjects could display impulsive, often criminal behavior and might be alcoholic. The subject could be aggressive and most exhibited depression. Often they were diagnosed as impulsive with sociopathic tendencies, end quote. So Faulkner's still presenting an understanding of trans male gender presentation as not genuine and presents the information about mental illness and substance abuse, which are issues that the transgender community in general struggles with, without any acknowledgement of their causes. There's also a thing there where Faulkner is still connecting crime with Mm. the transness. Like Faulkner is still Mm. like, oh yeah, it's because trans men are violent and impulsive and they do crimes. They're like hyper-masculine in a bad way. Was it Faulkner who described the trial as Harry's gender being put on trial? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, so like having written a whole book with that angle, but coming out of it and still being like, yeah, so trans men, you know, alcoholic criminals. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like, what is happening there? 
So you've sort of like beat me to the punchline <laughs> what my point is with this, but I want to note that both Tedeschi and Faulkner view Harry essentially as a woman with a psychological disorder, hence their use of she, her pronouns and Harry's dead name. Although they both think that trans people should be able to live openly and without discrimination, they also both think that transgender people are the gender that they're assigned at birth. I'm just so sick of people who are not themselves trans deciding to write biographies of trans people and just so obviously not having, like, you know, some trans sensitivity readers chatting to, like, a trans focus group who's going to help you with your book. You know, just go talk to someone. That's kind of what I was thinking when Faulkner was like, oh, you know, trans people are generally hyper-masculine in a caricatured way. And I'm Mm. like, have you met a trans person? Have you spoken to one? Mm. Mm. Like, that's, yeah. It really is evident that a lot of people don't know anything about trans people, get interested in a transgender biography, and are like, okay, I better do some reading. And the people that they are like, okay, these are the experts, are the people who are like writing the DSM-5 and things like that, and are saying like, okay, let me explain to you how gender identity disorder works. Yeah. You know, they're, they're talking to medical professionals, not to transgender people. So maybe if you're going to write a book about a trans person, go talk to some trans people. Mm. And in some ways for me, this was more difficult to read than like the haunted house quote or mm. other more blatantly transphobic biographies that we've read because so much of their work, as you noted, was ironically aimed at criticising the ways that Harry has been dehumanised and denied self-determination by the Australian public whilst they engage in a variation on that behaviour themselves. Yeah. And, like, not a very different variation, honestly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, this is evidence of a very medicalised, very pathologised way of talking about trans people. And that was certainly, I feel, the dominant and certainly the quote-unquote expert opinion when they were writing uh it's only just starting to wane i would say in the public consciousness we've started to move away from that but like Mm. i'm 27 and this was very much kind of how it was when i was like coming out and like going through the medical system to like get on hormones and stuff Mm. um and to be honest i'm quite inclined to cut them some slack for those reasons, especially Faulkner. I do think that these are both still quite positive contributions to the field of trans biography. Like, they've crossed the minimum hurdle, certainly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's that, that kind of thing where it's like you see a historical figure and you acknowledge their, like, shared experience with modern transgender identities. Like, that is crossing a hurdle that it few sure people is. cross. Yeah, yes. yeah. But given that we're apparently using Harry Crawford's story as a yardstick on where the Australian public is at regarding how it treats its transgender citizens, I do hope that when someone next writes a biography of Harry Crawford, whether it's in 40 years, whether it's in another 100 years, that it reflects more unequivocally positive progress for transgender Australians and that Harry Crawford is talked about with humanity and respect. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. You can find more of our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to leave us a review, Apple Podcasts in particular helps us to find new listeners. Spotify now has a thing where you can like rate podcasts you listen to out of five stars. Yeah. You can't write a review, so this is a very easy thing to do. If you're listening to us on Spotify, do it like right now. Do it. <laughs> do it. I'm happy. 
Okay, cool. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> if you do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we will perhaps read it out loud to show our appreciation of you. And to give you an example of such conduct, I will do so now. Our most recent review is from Diversity, spelled T-E-A, no. who is from Finland, which is very cool. Literally cool. and figuratively. Yes. Their review is five stars and entitled Informative, Thoughtful, and Funny. It reads, love, love, love this podcast. Started to listen in late August 2021, and now in a bit less than six months, I've listened to all the episodes. I've learned a lot about queer people and pieces of media and history and found many amazing people to relate to latest Louisa May Alcott, to my surprise. (laughs) As a bisexual cis woman, I really appreciate how bi-inclusive this podcast is. I mean, it should be. Yeah. This podcast is staffed, like, entirely by bisexuals, (laughs) so welcome. And I'm happy to learn a lot about trans people and gender issues too. Again, welcome to this episode for you. I love how the hosts acknowledge that gender and sexuality labels of today are not easily applicable to people that lived a long time ago and or in different parts of the world. As a polyamorous slash relationship anarchist, it's also delightful to hear about non-normative relationship models that queer people have had. I listened to podcasts on another app that wanted to give this review, so came to Apple Podcasts specifically for that. Thank you so much. Greetings and lots of love from snowy Finland, pretty much the other side of the globe, but for your geography with Chris fact section. (laughs) No, it's okay. We know where Finland is. We we, uh, have put effort into learn where Finland is, just not where any US state is. I feel that's it. We know where all countries are, but not where all states are. You Bold know where be- all countries are? Bold of you to say we know where all countries are, because I don't think our geography was curious fact has gone great in Africa. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. <laughs> mm, yeah, it's, uh, we will be uh, releasing a quiz where Aaron has to label all, right. all countries a lot <laughs> next week. Um... <laughs> Keep like, up. I feel I could tell you if they were in like North or South Africa. Right, I'll accept, okay. I'll accept yeah. that. Keep up the good work. You're amazing. Rainbow flag emoji, trans flag emoji, muscle emoji. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice. nice. <laughs> Thank you so much for that review and especially for putting in the effort to come over to Apple Podcasts. That is much appreciated. If you would like to get in touch with us or find out more about what we're up to, you can find us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact. You can also email us at queerasfact at gmail.com. And if you would like to send us post, you can find our PO box address on our website. Speaking of our website, we have it. Uh, <laughs> it is www.queerasfact.com and it has all of the information that I've told you now, but written down instead if you would like to check it. If you would like to support us financially, you can buy our merch on Redbubble or you can uh, subscribe to our Patreon where you can get cool and groovy rewards for as little as a dollar a month. We we are releasing some bonus episodes. We have one out uh, with some bonus content about Frida Kahlo, and we'll have more out soon. And you can also vote on episode topics. This episode topic was chosen by our patrons. So you, if you hated this episode and you don't want us to have done it, you can go to Patreon and stop us from doing anything <laughs> like it ever again. <laughs> And we also have some other rewards over there as well, so go and check that out if it interests you. Our next episode topic is also going to be a Patreon poll, so I think when this releases you'll have like a day to go and still vote on that. So if you want to go on and have a look and and pick what book Jason and I are going to have to read, you can go and do so now. Otherwise, we'll be back on March 1st. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you then.